Also kind of cool is when Jason was talking about the Imam's Bazaar that's happening, and if you want to be a vendor to sign up for it, uh, Laura, who that email goes to, she she seems like she's been pregnant with this little boy for like three years, right? It's like never come out. She had it last week. She had it last week. His name is Gavin. Uh, Donald, if you know who Donald is, he's very happy because he now finally has another boy in the house. He's got like like four ladies and now a little boy. So he's like, yay! She looked great when she had the baby. <laughs> Just throwing it out there. Uh, we, our next men's breakfast is this coming Saturday. Uh, we don't actually have a speaker for this one. We're doing something a little bit different. So we invite you to come. There will be bacon, from what I hear. So men can always bond over bacon. That's in the Bible. It's New Testament because, you know, but anyway. Oh, good. You guys got a Bible joke. That's cool. Most of you are like, I don't get it. What's going on? So, Yeah. Great, great. If you are newer to Element, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you will get some deeper stuff than what we talk about here. There's also some questions to go deeper. On the back, there's the announcements. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. The app is called Uversion. You click on Live and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes, the questions, and the verses, and all that goes along with today's message. But you won't see the kid throwing up on me. So, bummer for that, bummer for that. Uh, my name is Aaron, I'm one of the pastors here, why don't you stand with me, reading of God's word. We will get started, this is Proverbs 27, verse 6, and it simply says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who speak honesty and truth into one another's lives, that we would understand that your spirit does that to us, that you are a God who brings truth and light and hope, and grace, and in the midst of all that, redemption. And I ask that understanding that redemption, we be a people who live in the grace and hope of your truth, and you would lead us to be the people you intend for us to be. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in a series. It's called Legends of the Fall. It's all about all the bad people or bad stories in the Bible and how it relates so strongly to who we are, because we want to look at the bad people in the Bible and a story and say, oh, that can never be me, because I am so much better than that. And we have been showing you that, no, no, you are those people. You are just as bad as anybody there. Uh, sometimes when you read stories like Cain and Abel, think, oh, I'm not Cain. By the time we get to the end of it, you realize, oh, I'm Cain. We're going to look at the devil in a few weeks, and you're going to realize, I am just like the devil. Except, not as smart. You're welcome. Okay? So today is kind of like a part two. During the summer, we did coloring book all-stars, and everything back here was all happy and joyful. The sunlight and the city wasn't burnt down like this. Then we went Legends of the Fall, and we burned it down. And now it looks all like ominous and kind of like that. In coloring book all-stars, the part one of this, we looked at David and Goliath. You know, the, oh, David's a hero, it's so wonderful, it's so great. David, as a young man, he loves God, he wants to see God's glory known throughout the world. And we love that story about a young boy takes on a giant and wins, when in the end it was really about God's victory. But if we know two things about David's life, it's David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. Those are the two things that most people know about his life. And so David and Bathsheba is the legends of the fall. That's like the negative thing, what happens in his life. Because almost for every Goliath, we, we can like, oh, I took that on in my life. There's always that Bathsheba, that temptation that comes along and wants to destroy us. But you have to also remember, it was David who pursues Bathsheba. She's just taken a bath, and David is like the creepy peeping Tom. So that... Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. We'll just, that's, that's our launching point right there. 
the setting for the story takes place in what's known as the Ammonite War. It's a background for all that happens in 2 Samuel 10 through 12. David has defeated the Syrians. He's now concentrating on besieging the city. The city is called Rabbah at 2 Samuel 10, 14. He's expanding, consolidating the territory of Israel. And this should be a time of great excitement and a time of great joy for the people in Israel. But sometimes when things are going really well is right when it's easiest to fall. It's why a lot of this story is going to focus on how God seeks David and God bringing friendship into David's life that will love him enough to tell him the truth. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 starts like this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So the text starts, and it wants you to know that something is going on with David. This is a time when the kings go out to battle. Kind of makes you think of like fall and spring when kids go off to college or spring when baseball players learn how to hit the ball again. It's like, it's like that thing. It's when you, when you go out, but David doesn't go out. You're supposed to see the difference between a king at leisure and then men in the battlefield and say there is something wrong with this picture. The wrongness should have been clear to everybody. I think personally for David, he's at a place in his life and it's kind of like his midlife crisis. So he's, he's not old, but he's not young. He's kind of in the middle, and he's like, oh, I'm getting a little pudgy, and girls aren't looking at me as much, so I'm going to go start working out so chicks dig me. I'm going to buy, like, a two-seater sports chariot and drive it around Jerusalem and be like, woo, I'm David. You know, that, he thinks that's kind of going to make him, make him cool. Something's going on in David. He is not talking to anybody about it, and no one's talking to him about it. So then it goes to verse 2. It happened. And I love that it starts like that because this is like a story everybody in Israel is going to know. So what's it? You know it. Oh, yeah, it. Okay, so it it happened. Late one afternoon, everyone's out to battle. David's hanging out on his couch playing his Xbox. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Now, the bathing here, it's a ritual cleansing at the end of her Period. This is a spiritual act between her and God. She is ceremonially doing something between her and God. That's how it's... And it's also setting up a precursor to ovulation. And it says, and the woman was very beautiful. And what you see in this is that David sees not a woman. David sees an object. He sees a thing. In here, it doesn't mention anything about her character. When the, when the Hebrew scriptures wanted to talk about something about somebody's character, it would use this word. The word's called hyapa. And it would mean the, her internal and external beauty. Here, all it says is, she's hot. That's all that it says. So it's like early pornography. It's, it's just a fix. He's fulfilling his own little personal want. And David has this thing inside, so he thinks, I'll just satisfy it with that over there. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, So one person has the guts. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, in genealogies of women, they will always list the ancestors. They don't list the husbands. And by listing the husbands, this one person is saying, that is someone's wife. You knucklehead, what are you asking about that for? He's trying to give David a little bit of perspective. But he still won't come out and say, what are you thinking? Get on your horse and go out and be with your troops. Stop standing around here. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. 
Now, kings in every culture have certain rights. In Israel, no king had the right of adultery. And if David is spiritually sensitive at all, he is going to look and see, oh, this girl is doing something that's ceremonially between her and God. I should stop staring at her. But he doesn't. He doesn't have any of that. None of that. And he should have saddled his horse and gone to his advisors and said, something's going on inside of me. I don't know what it is. I feel a little bit lost. Can you help me? But he doesn't do that. He probably thinks, I'm the king. No one's going to relate to this. And if they do, they're just going to judge me. So who can I really talk to? So when he sees, like, for us, like the yellow light, he just gasses it and runs right through the intersection. He probably thinks, I'm in control. I can handle this. Oh, she's over there. Her husband's off to battle. I'll just call her up and say, hey, how you doing? Send her a little email, just checking out, hey, what's going on? Hey, you want to come see the palace? You can come for dinner. I know you're alone and it's lonely. I'll give you a tour. It'll be, it'll be really cool. We go to Hearst Castle. It'll be great. You know? So they're like walking down the hallway and, oh, I had sex with her. I just fell. How'd that happen? And then he sends her back home. Thanks for the good time. Don't call me. I won't call you. And this comes every frat boy's worst nightmare. Verse 5, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David said, how'd that happen? Right? No. He doesn't. What he does is he freaks out. He starts to try and take action again without consulting God, without consulting his friends, without talking to anybody. David's like, I have got to fix this. I've got to cover my own butt. So he sends for Uriah. You know, that's her husband, right? Sends for Uriah, and he tries to make Uriah sleep with Bathsheba. But Uriah, which is really interesting because his name is reference to a foreigner. So he is a foreigner that decided, I'm going to follow the the God of Israel and I'm going to follow the king of Israel. And it shows you that Uriah, a foreigner, has more loyalty to his troops and to God than David, who the scriptures call a man after God's own heart. And it was in this culture considered inappropriate during a battle campaign to go home and sleep with your wife. And so Uriah is not going to dishonor his troops or God being able to do something that they can't do. Verse 10, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? This is all sex talk. It's all, if you know what I mean. Nope. Okay. So Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booze, meaning they're out camping in the field of battle. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So David hatches another idea. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he he made him drunk. That's David's new plan. I'll get Uriah drunk and then send him home and he will sleep with his wife. And in the evening, he, Uriah, went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. So that's David's couch. He doesn't go home. He did not go down to his house. So David can't manipulate Uriah. He can't get Uriah to do what he wants him to do. So he gets another plan. Again, not consulting anybody, just trying to figure it out on his own. David sends him back to the battle, to the front lines, and when the fighting is fiercest, he's like, just pull back and kind of leave him out there. David throws Uriah under the bus, and the Ammonites come, and they kill Uriah, but David essentially murders Uriah. Then he marries Bathsheba, and she bears him this son. And what David probably tells everybody is, oh, you know, poor Bathsheba. Her husband died in a battle. And you know what? I don't want to leave her destitute, so I will marry her. I will honor Uriah in that way. And everybody probably thinks, man, David, what a great guy. I mean, slays the giants, kills his tens of thousands, and now he marries this poor widow. David is just amazing. But 
we know what the real story actually is. Now, usually in the scriptures, you'll see things like, oh, and the Lord is with David, and the Lord is with David. This tells you something so much worse, because at the end of this chapter, it doesn't say that. What it says in verse 27 is, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God is not happy about David's sin. A lot of times, we try and convince ourselves or God that our sin is okay. God is not happy with our sin. I mean, I think the danger thought, David thought the greatest danger in his life is if somebody found out what he did. But in reality, the greatest danger was if nobody ever found out what David did. I mean, we don't know how long he hid this, how long before you know, his trusted friend came up and actually talked to him, but it's at least long enough for Bathsheba to give birth. So David's got at least nine months of pretending to be king and pretending to lead the people of Israel, pretending to be something that he wasn't. And inside, I bet you he's just so confused. He's like, I'm a murderer, I'm an adulterer. He tries to show everybody how close he is to God, but inside he knows how far his heart feels away from God. And when we face temptation and isolation, we are vulnerable to our own self-deception, just like David. I mean, we're not any different in any way. I mean, David needed the truth. He needed someone to come up to him and tell him the truth, and nobody did. Nobody would. And we're, we're a strange people because we're just like David. I mean, if somebody came up and told him the truth, would he really have wanted to listen? We tell people all the time, we want the truth. I just want you to tell me the truth. Be honest with me. But in reality, we don't really want people to be honest with us. We want people to say nice things to us. Let's, let's just take a step back and talk about something as mundane as like our bodies, okay? We have these things in our houses called scales, and every service, people go, oh, yeah, that's funny. Do you know, studies have shown that people in their homes, when no one's around, before they get on a scale, sometimes they'll take a shower, they take off their clothes, their shoes, sometimes they will even poop, so that when they get up, they're like, oh, yeah, that's my real weight right there. I, you know, I, I mean, oh, but I just got out of the shower, oh, so, so I got some water droplets, so I'm actually lighter than this. We do all these things to try and convince ourselves we're, that the scale is not really right. Oh, this one must be broken. I better go and buy a new one, because I don't know what's up with this one. Uh, some people have said they even remove heavy makeup before they get on a scale. You know, they can measure the fat content in your body by electrodes. I will not sign up for that because I don't know what that's going to feel like. Another one says you can sit in a chair. They put you in a, in a bat of water and take you in it. You exhale. And then they measure the displacement of the water to see all that. Ken Davis, he's a comedian, and he says he's got a free fat test. He says when you get out of the shower, you grab a stopwatch and stand in front of the mirror. You click the stopwatch and you stamp your foot. He goes, when you stop jiggling, you shut off the stopwatch. He says, he goes, I'm down to two days, three hours, and six minutes. How about, how about mirrors, right? Uh, John Ortberg asks this question. He says, why does an outfit always look better in the store? And I'm not talking Ross or Marshalls. I'm talking like an expensive store. Do you know why it looks better? Because they strategically place their lights in their changing rooms, and they turn them down. So you're like, oh, my goodness. I just lost all my wrinkles when I put this outfit on. It's amazing. All my blemishes are gone. These clothes take years off my appearance. And you walk out and put them out at home and go, what? You know, what happened here? You know, they've also seen that, that people don't really care how large their clothes are as long as the number on the label is small. I mean, scales and mirrors, they're all tools of accountability, and we're always trying to outsmart them. But if you want, they will tell you the truth. I mean, as Christians, we have to be a people who get on the scale, metaphorically speaking. Everybody needs someone in their life that will tell them the truth, to tell us the truth about our hearts and our souls, because we have blind spots that we don't see or blind spots we refuse to even look at. We need truth tellers. We need to encourage people in our lives to tell us the truth and not get all over them or blow them off when they do their job. Our capacity at self-deception is astounding, just like David. 
In social psychology, they have this thing. It's called cognitive dissonance. What that is, it's like the guy who says, I'll only stop at this donut shop if there's a parking spot out front because then it's God ordained. But then they'll drive around the, par- the, the parking lot six times until one comes, oh, it is God ordained, I, I am there. John Ortberg defines cognitive dissonance as the ability to justify what we say or do so it is consistent with our self-concept. So we're always redefining it. We do this with the scriptures. We're like, oh, that's not really for me. That's not for today. I don't have to really pay any attention to that. In John 8, 32, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders about the truth. And he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Just a few verses later, you know what they do? They try and kill him. Like, oh, the truth. You're a dead man. Uh, that's, yeah. We need the truth for our freedom. This is why at Element, gospel-centered community is so important to us. We're always talking about gospel communities. It's essential. We need truthful people in our lives to help us live in and accept reality. I mean, the people that God sends our way are meant to be anchors in our lives that hold, hold us accountable to all these decisions we make. William Paulson once wrote, It is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard way. What that means is when we make decisions, we announce them. We tell people about them so other people can say, hey, what are your commitments about prayer? Or what are your commitments about God's word? What are your commitments about giving? Like when we did Planting Roots last year, I told four people about my wife and my commitment about it so that they can ask me, how's it going? Are you moving forward with that? What's going on? We make these decisions. We announce them. We go public because we need accountability. So people can say, how's it working? Does something need to change? You know who mountaineers climb? Mountaineers climb by attaching themselves to each other. That's so one person falls, the other person's clipped in, that person doesn't die. Alcoholics Anonymous. You have people and you have sponsors. Weight Watchers even does this because we can't do it alone. I think God made us this way. I mean, what if you say, my spiritual life sucks. I just, I can't, I can't do anything with it. Well, who are you doing the journey with? Well, no one. There you go. There you go. I mean, you can have the greatest intentions, but when we try to live our lives on our own, it always ends up in disaster. Our values, our ideals, they get compromised. I mean, look at David. You know, John Wesley, when when they started the Methodist movement and all of that, they'd get together in small groups to watch over one another in love. Before anybody joined one of these small communities, they were asked some questions. I'm going to read you these questions, right? You're going to be like, oh, thank God no one asked me those. Listen to these questions. Does any sin, inward or outward, have dominion over you? Do you desire to be told your faults? And then the very next question, do you desire to be told all your faults? Because it's like, yeah, no, you don't, yeah. And that plain and clear, right? And then they say, do you desire that we should tell you whatsoever we think, whatsoever we fear, whatsoever we hear concerning you? Is it your desire and design to be on this and all other occasions entirely open so as to speak everything that is in your heart without exception, without disguise, and without reserve? Do you desire that in doing so we should become as close as possible? I mean, can you imagine someone asking about you? No. It'd be like, those gospel communities are weirdos. I am not going there. Because we don't like that kind of stuff. But imagine what our lives would be like if we had people in our lives like that. I mean, I am not even sure that John Wesley's own people thought they could do that with him because his marriage was a total wreck. And over time, these groups, they lost their focus and they shrank and they're lost. Scott Peck wrote, A life of total dedication to truth also means a life of willingness to be personally challenged. But the tendency to avoid challenge is so omnipresent in human beings that it can properly be considered a characteristic of human nature. We want to avoid so much, it seems like it's just part of our character. 
I don't know where I first heard this story. I've heard it a few times, but Gary Richmond tells this story about one time they had to help a 13-foot king cobra that was in, in a cage at a zoo. Uh, king cobras, full-grown, have enough poison to kill like a 1,000 adults. So you got this, this cobra in this zoo. It has this scar. It would shed its skin, but not all would come off, so the scar area would then get infected. And so people would have to go in and kind of take care of that. And this time there were like five people that did that. You had two zookeepers, a zoo curator, a veterinarian, and then, then Gary, who's got a sponge and a scalpel in his hand. So they charge in. The cobra goes ballistic. They throw nets on it, so the zookeeper's like trying to hold it in. It's like, ah, trying to bite everybody. And then the zoo curator runs around, and he grabs the cobra by the back of the neck, and he asks Gary, do you have any cuts on your hands? And Gary's like, uh, no. And he's all, okay, okay. He goes, I want you to wad up some, some towels and I want you to put it in the cobra's mouth. And Gary's like, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> and he's all, no, no, do it. And he's like, so he wads it up and the cobra starts biting. And pretty soon the, the towels are yellow with the ooze of like all of this venom. And then, uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, full-grown grown elephants can die from cobra bites, so that's how powerful it is. Eventually, the curator's hands, they, they start to cramp up, which is really good news for the cobra, not for anybody else in the room. And Gary said at that point, he understood what they told him before they walked into the cage. And they told him, more people are bitten trying to let go of snakes than when they grab them. Trying to let go. See, snakes are kind of easy to grab, but very hard to let go. That is true of human temptation and human sin. Deceit bitterness, pornography, greed, debt, sin is addictive. And it is fatal to think that we can handle this on our own because we can't. I mean, many times when we are tempted and we don't tell anybody about it, there's kind of two reasons. One, we secretly want to give into it and don't want anybody to know. Or two, we don't really trust the people around us enough to hold us accountable and to love us enough. If you look at David, David grabs the snake, okay? It bites and he couldn't let go. Until one day, like what always happens throughout the scripture, God pursues David. God is the one who chases David down. Just like God has chased his children down all throughout the scriptures. David, his life is broken, it's in pieces, and God is full of grace. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Who sent Nathan to David? The Lord. God sought him out. David's been playing God in his own life. Goes all the way back to Adam and Eve thinking they know the good for the life better than God does. And so God sent Nathan to be a friend and a prophet to David. God is going to hold David accountable. And I wonder, when Nathan does this, what's going on in Nathan's mind? You think Nathan's like, oh my goodness, you know, what if David responds poorly? He killed Uriah, he could kill me too. You know, that that could actually happen. Nathan could also be thinking, what right do I have? I've lusted in my heart. What right do I have to go and call David out on these things? Have you ever thought about maybe confronting somebody and thought, man, but look at the sin in my own life. Now, at this point in David's life, it's been a year since it happened. Okay? It's, it's so God gives Nathan a way to kind of speak into David's heart. And before we go and kind of finish this, you've got to hear me. You've got to be careful. There's a fine line between being a truth teller and being a weenie. I'm thinking about putting that on T-shirts, making you guys wear them. Truth teller or weenie with check boxes next to them. Weenie. You, you know, because when you go and tell somebody the truth, it needs to be out of a heart of redemption and love. There can be anger there. Anger can push you to do the right thing. But underneath it all needs to be the hope of redemption and grace and love and restoration. That's how it happens. 
And so when Nathan goes to David, he tells him this story. 2 Samuel 12, second half of verse 1. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. All you cat people, you totally understand this. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. So the rich guy, who has plenty, takes the poor man's pet because he can. And David is ticked off. Verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And we would never do this in our lives, right? Get so wound up about somebody else's sin and overlook our own? Yeah, okay, okay. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Nathan tells David the truth. And I wonder what it was like when he was done, because I think there's silence. I think it's just like, and David's like, and, and Nathan's like, you know, what's, what's going to happen here? I mean, David could think, kill him! Like, I heard of Uriah, I can do this guy too, nobody likes a prophet, you know? Or, or David may think, I'll just run out and live in a cave, and so no one will come after me, and, and I won't feel like I have to face up to this, because he lived in a cave for a few years of his life. But I think what happens is that God's grace continues to pursue David. And I think David maybe remembers when he's a shepherd boy and God takes care of him or when he stands up to giants or when he dances in front of the ark of the Lord and didn't care what anybody thought. I think David then looks at his heart and sees it's hard and it's self-righteous and it's bitter and his heart starts to melt. And David says this in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's where it starts. That's where it always has to start. Our sin is first and foremost against God. That's where it starts. And this is kind of what can happen when we begin to tell the truth in each other's lives. It can happen. It doesn't mean it always does. A lot of times people just get mad at you for telling the truth. But it can happen. And this is what the scriptures tell us we're supposed to pursue. This is what we're supposed to be about. Bringing glory to God, speaking grace and truth and redemption to one another's lives. Because this can actually, speaking the truth, bring about redemption and grace and hope. And if it's so important to God and so important in the scriptures, why don't we do it? Why is it so easy in our lives to be irritated at somebody and go tell everybody else why we're so irritated and how much they bother us rather than going and telling the person we're irritated at? Why is it so hard to do that? And I believe the answer is that it is fear. Because it takes great courage to hear the truth and it takes great courage to tell the truth, especially when it gets messy. And if you tell the truth, you can get blamed for poking your nose in where it doesn't belong. And sometimes we will tell the truth until it gets hard. Then we'll just settle for peace. I think too often people fear other people more than they love God and more than they trust God. I mean, peace, it is fatal. It is fatal to marriages. It's fatal to friendships. It is fatal to churches because there's too much going on under the surface. 
And I don't know where I read it, but there's some brilliant author, it wasn't me, that said this. To be in true relationships, you have to be willing to enter chaos. You have to be willing to do that. Ephesians 6.1 says, be imitators of God. Okay, so what did Jesus do? How did Jesus take care of it? Mark 9.33, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So his disciples are walking down this road, and they're going, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And they get in the house, and Jesus goes, so what are you guys talking about? Nothing. Jesus is like, no, I know it. It steps right into the middle of it. In Luke 6.46, these people are coming up to Jesus and saying, oh, Jesus, we love you. And Jesus says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Steps right. I think you can say that to every single one of us. Why do we call him Lord and not actually follow through on what he says? At one point in John 4, Jesus is talking to a promiscuous woman, and he says, hey, go get your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. And he goes, I know. Now let's talk about that. Steps right into the middle of it. He called religious leaders hypocrites right to their faces. Later, you'll see Paul go after Peter for caving in to legalists. I mean, if we want real relationships in our lives, sometimes you've got to go through pain to have real and permanent relationships. Telling people what they want to hear, it is not love. Shying away from sin is not love. And when people are in destructive behaviors, they need to be shown a mirror and a scale, metaphorically speaking. Nathan loved God, and Nathan loved David so much he was willing to die to tell David the truth, and we chicken out for way lower stakes. I mean, think about this. How is David, a man after God's own heart, how does this guy become a murderer and adulterer? The same way that we do, right? No one, no one starts a marriage thinking they're going to get a divorce. No one has kids and they plan to abandon them. No one sets out to become a secret alcoholic. No one opens their first nudie mag thinking they're going to become an addict. No one plans for it, but it happens. Because we have no one in our lives, we've invited into our lives to tell us the truth. No one holds us to the values we claim that we hold so dearly. We must become vulnerable. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to be a tender and vulnerable people. We must not only be willing to die for Jesus, but to live our lives for him as well. Nathan tells David the truth. David's heart becomes broken. He realizes, I should die for what I have done. And in verse 13, Nathan tells David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. And this is the beauty of the gospel, because once again you see the gospel proclaimed in the Old Testament. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You know, for every single one of us in this room, we have all these things in our lives that we want to hide, that we have done. We hope nobody ever knows. But do you know that Jesus put away your sin at the cross? That's why Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead. He put away our sin. And that means we should stop hiding in it. We can stop hiding and living in it. We're not alone in it. People can step in and redemption can begin to take place. The gospel is about freedom and hope and true worship. This is why God intends for us to live in community with other people. So my question for you is, who's your Nathan? Who is your Nathan? Is there anyone that you've invited into your life that you're honest enough to tell them the truth about your life so that they can step in and bring you the honest truth? Are you the Nathan in anybody else's life? I mean, how would David's life have turned out if God had not sought him out and if Nathan had not sought him out? His slide would have gone forever. The Gospel Transformation Bible, it sums up this chapter, and I love the way it says it. It says, the good news of this tragic chapter is that the history of God's people did not finally rest even on David. Despite being a man after God's own heart, and despite the fact that David knows how to repent sincerely in the wake of grievous sin, David cannot save God's people. 
He is too weak. He fails. A son of David needs to come who will not fail. In Jesus Christ, this Davidic heir arrives. What it's telling you is that all the stuff in our lives that we try and hide so God can't see it, God sees it, and God has paid for it in His Son. That God has called us to be a people that understand that the gospel and living in the gospel present reality means that we become Nathans in each other's lives. We love each other, tell each other the truth. We laugh with each other. We cry with each other. We, we step into hard situations. Why? Because God stepped into our hard situation first. God sent his son and pursued us as a people to rescue and redeem and call us home. And in that, our lives are supposed to be lived in the present reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out in our lives. This, this is why we go to communion every single week. It's where you break that cracker, where you remember Christ's body was broken for you. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Remember, Christ's blood was shed for me to bring me into relationship with God again. God sought me, and God pursued me, and God loves me, and God calls me home, and His Son died to wipe away all that stands between me and Him, but also you and other people. I mean, sometimes someone will do something to you, and you're just like, oh, they need to get crucified. They need just to die. The wrath of my will needs to come down upon them. What you need to understand is that Jesus was crucified in their stead, just like he was crucified in your stead. And that means many times those little things can start to be put away, and you can begin to walk in reconciliation and redemption and the restoration of relationships. I mean, this is the beauty of what Jesus came to do in our lives. Save us and send us on mission. I mean, it kind of seems like that we keep coming back to all throughout the coming book, All-Stars and the Legends of the Fall. Saves us, sends us on mission to be his people, to honor him in all things. Uh, the band's going to come up. And as they do, I invite you guys, I said, to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, I mean, maybe you're in a place where you're like, yeah, you just don't understand all the garbage that's in my heart and in my life. And like, you know what? It's okay. God does know. He does. And they love to pray with you about that. I mean, there is no better day than today to surrender all that you are to him and then to rise and to begin to walk in new life. And so they love to pray. That or anything, if anything's going on in your life, they love to pray with you through that stuff. There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he has done. And then there's food and stuff in the back. We invite you guys to grab something to eat. And maybe today's the day where you begin to develop a relationship with a Nathan. Maybe you start to become a Nathan in somebody else's life. Maybe you're in back in the back and you're fighting for a cookie and it's like, boom. Okay, so let's talk about it. You know, uh, my anniversary was on Friday. Uh, it doesn't anything do anything. My wife gave me this little plaque and it says, a balanced diet is a cookie in both hands. <laughs> Thus says the Lord, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's in the Bible somewhere, right? Um, Grab something to eat. Meet somebody else. Maybe, maybe meet another family. Or today's the day you decide, I'm going to check out a gospel community. And you start to go through some of the questions in there. You start to get a little bit deeper, and you start to open your heart and your life to other people. And it's hard. It is hard to trust other people enough to step into hard things in your life, and yet that they will still love you on the back side of that. It's hard. But God calls us into those things because we must understand is that he is the one who has first put away our sin and called us into relationship with him. And so we become a people who are called into relationship with others around us because we are supposed to be imitators of our great God who has rescued and saved us. Let's pray.
Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us and make in us a people who seeks the grace and the hope and the goodness of speaking the truth in each other's lives. Of not settling for fake peace, but pursuing real and honest peace. That you would move our hearts in such a way that when you speak to us, you would rip away all the calluses that we try and put between our hearts and your voice. So that when you speak and when you move, we're tender enough to hear you. We are open enough to live the life that you call us to. We ask then that you would send us to speak the truth in others' lives, to listen to the truth when people speak it to us, that you would move your children to be a people who live the life that you call us to, to honor you in all things. Take our hearts, take our lives, continue to convict and mold us into the people you intend for us to be. A community that is centered upon your gospel and your truth. Living the hope of who you are in each other's lives. We ask all of these things in your son's good name. Amen.